This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Behind the Line podcast where we discuss all things related to the Super Retriever series. Hey everybody, I'm your host David Hamilton, and my guest today is multi-time SRS crown champion Stephen Durrance. Stephen, thanks for being here with us. Glad to be here. Stephen, we have a lot to discuss today. I know a lot of people want to hear your opinion on things since you are such an accomplished handler in the Retriever Trial game, but uh, first I want to take a moment to, to thank our sponsor, the Super Retriever Series Crown Championship. Along with this episode of the Behind the Line podcast is brought to you by Yukonuba, the leader in premium nutrition for sporting and working dogs. And I got to tell you, speaking of leaders, you can often find Stephen Durrance's name atop the leaderboard at SRS competitions and even at the crown championship. So we're so excited to have him here to chat with us today. So Stephen, let's get to it, man. Shoot. Absolutely. So Taylor Farm Kennels, everybody knows that's the, the name of your retriever training business, but it's also where you live with your wife, Kendra, and your three children. But it's not just some property that you've bought and that you you train dogs on. It's it's really where your roots are and, and where you grew up. Can you tell us about your childhood just growing up around Taylor Farms and what it was like, you know, being a kid in South Georgia? <laughs> yeah, typically this time of year, the only thing between me and God was a pair of shorts. Um, we were, you know, I grew up playing, playing in the woods, living on a dirt road, you know, grandparents right down the road in the middle of a family group and growing up. That was really what I wanted for my children was the opportunity to to experience this place and this world um, the way that I got to. You know, grandparents are on one side, aunt and uncle right down the road, um, kennel in between. Uh, this is this is a family farm that that Taylor Farm Kennels is my mother's maiden name, so um, that I felt like I felt obligated to name this business. Not just after her her namesake, but after my grandfather, who was my great influence when it came to animals. So it was kind of a a natural progression for me to to name it Taylor Farm Kennels. But this is a pre Civil War era working farm, and I just I, I'm enjoying 
letting my children grow up with the opportunity to to experience it not only the way that I did, but in the way that they get to each 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 um experience it in their own way and they have the opportunity if they want to pick the legacy up and carry it in their own way that opportunity is there and that's what more can you ask for for each generation than the opportunity to carry it on yeah and as the world continues to change it's just nice to know that that one thing stays the same that's you and your family there on that on that property and like you said getting to to spend time with family and spend time outdoors you mentioned your grandfather a minute ago and and he's the one that really instilled love and animals to you so what was your bond like with him, and, and how did you get to have such a, a, a an affinity for animals, particularly dogs? Well, when you when you grow up on a farm, dealing with animals is a normal thing. Um, they, you know, when I was a little boy, I remember when we had hogs, and we've had cows my whole life. And um, my grandfather actually he didn't train for other people; he just trained for himself. But he had he had herding dogs, um, which was obviously a natural thing to have on the farm. Um, so. I got to watch his interaction with the dogs, the dogs interaction with the animals. Um, you know, and, and my grandfather was not a, uh, what you would consider a super big, strong, able-bodied man. He had been limited by polio early in his life and had to, had to fight those physical struggles his whole life. But that didn't stop him from, from being able to manipulate animals, even if they were, you know, 10 times his size, he was able to, to communicate with them in a special way. And, and it was just fun to watch. And I was always in the woods. My, my granddaddy didn't care a whole lot about hunting and he sure didn't care about fishing, but he would, he'd make sure that the fish were always fed just cause he, he liked to watch us fish. And I, I never really understood that until I had children. Um, I always thought he was crazy that he was sitting over there just watching, but it was, it was one of those, you know, special bonds, special times. And, and it was neat. It was a neat opportunity to get to grow up that way. Absolutely, man. I can understand that. My grandpa had a had a lake, and he would uh, before we'd come, he'd bait the dock the night before, and then I'd go down there with my little GI Joe fishing rod the next day and think I caught a big fish and thought it was something I did, not knowing that the night before he had you know put some bait around the dock so that they'd let me catch him. So I'm like, look what I caught, Granddad. And he's like, hey, that a boy, way to go. Yeah, so I can I can definitely appreciate that. Um, it was a natural progression. It was a natural progression for me to enjoying hunting enjoying the outdoors and enjoying animals you know those two things often intersect i i remember as a child i always wanted a hunting dog and when i was 12 my parents bought me a two-year-old golden you know that that was i'm sure somebody else's problem and i'm sure i couldn't have done with him what i can do with animals now but it shows you know even back then i i had a desire to want to work with animals and and make it work around hunting and that was just a it was neat. It was neat when I finally figured out a way to connect the dots and make that work out. Yeah. So that was, uh, I'm glad you went there. Cause that was going to be my next question is in, in doing this podcast series, you know, asking the different handlers, both professional and amateur, you know, how'd you get into it? And some of them said they, you know, they got into it specifically for the, for the training purposes. And others said, look, I was just, you know, wanting to go hunt and wanted a, a dog to help me. And so I trained a dog specifically for just me and then found out that I liked it. So Kind of which side of that are you on? Did you did you originally get into it because you wanted to train a dog to help you go hunt, or was it that you you liked the idea of, as you said earlier, you know, kind of seeing like what your grandfather was able to do to train and manipulate animals, and kind of wanted to do the same thing? Uh, I guess it was a little bit of both, but but primarily, you know, like I said, I grew up in the woods hunting, but ducks are not what you would consider a prevalent game bird in Georgia. 
So it was, uh, you know, the love of of dealing with animals and then the progression towards, hey, man, I really think that this duck hunting thing is a cool deal. And the first time I ever saw a dog sit on a whistle and take a cast was watching the great outdoor games when I was in high school. And when I got to college, I got to see a live demonstration at the state fairgrounds. So, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, man, I have to have one of those. I have to. So it was, it was for hunting, but it was also for just that abiding ability. It still baffles me that, you know, what we can ask dogs to do, what we can communicate with them and, and the process of teaching it. I fell as much in love with that as I did with actual hunting. So. It was definitely a means to an end, but I knew from the very start the actual process of teaching, the process of learning to teach was going to be just as addictive as the hunting itself. So how'd you get into training? I mean, you said you you went to the state fair and you saw that that and you were immediately hooked. So did you immediately go home and and get a dog or or how'd that whole process start for you? Well, I was in college and I was was a couple hours away from home and I was in in a precarious situation. So... Stacy West was who was doing the uh, demonstration originally. He was one of the original SRS guys and um, got to know him. And next year he wasn't there. Another fellow named Glenn Connie was. And I talked to Glenn about um, I was getting close to ready to get a dog. And it's, I guess, March, maybe March of my senior year when I was about to graduate college, I went ahead and got a dog and I was locked and loaded and ready to start as soon as I got home and I knew I was going to be home. So. I I knew what I was headed <laughs> even when I was graduating college. I did not anticipate that I was going to be a dog trainer, but I knew what my summer project was going to be as soon as I got done. I was I was in I was reading everything I could. I was in love with the love with the the, the concept of training before I ever really got to apply it the first time. And how those early days go when you actually got out there with the dog and tried to train him? Oh, I mean it was just it, it, I would love to tell you it was just a walk in the park and everything I dreamed it would be, but you know there was a lot of frustration, a lot of, a lot of um, me losing my temper and and my dog having to overcome a very very poor trainer with a very very poor mindset. Um, but you know as I progressed, one of my one of my training buddies and mentors told me years ago. He said, Stephen, he said you remind me so much of me. And he had been training dogs since the early 80s. He said, you have no idea what you're doing, but you're doing it every day. And I thought, man, what a perfect way to say it. Because, it, you know, it is the art of dog training. It's the practice of dog training. You're doing it every day. I mean, if you're not getting better, you need to quit. Um, so, you know, my, my, my first dog was a good dog, not because of me, but in spite of me. And I'd like to think that as I got more progressed in my abilities that that I was able to maybe turn that hat around. Yeah, that makes sense. So question for you. I know a lot of the feedback we get from people that listen to these podcasts is they say, you know, some of these handlers, the the Lyle Stymans, the Steve Endurances, uh, you know, those people are our heroes. And so especially among the, the, the amateurs, they're like, you know, if any advice they could give, that's that's really the stuff that they really love to hear. So for someone who's maybe, and we'll get some advice later for someone a little bit more seasoned, but for somebody who's just now kind of getting into it, if if someone is just now getting interested in the game, just now getting interested in training a dog, and they're out there with their first dog, like you were at one point, what's your advice to them? Is it just stay with it, like you said a minute ago, or is there anything more tactical that you could could describe for us? 
Well, in the grand scheme of things, you got to remember it's not about the destination. It's truly about the journey. Um, when you're when you're going through the, the, the steps of training dogs, it's just a you see it so much more with someone who has their second dog than, than they have their first. You know, you have your first dog and every time a dog achieves an accomplishment, you know, whether they sit and stay for 30 seconds or they bring back that first retrieve, um, you know, learn how to place potty training. I mean, all these little things that they do, you're a cheerleader for, it. you know, you're, you're excited in the, in the, the journey of, and then in the process of actual watching a dog learn, watching the dog put things together. And then folks usually get their second dog and they want to skip through that whole beginning part and just jump to advanced training work. And, and you see them try to take that large leap. And, and when they do that, they usually skip a lot of, of steps in between and it ends up with an incomplete animal. You know, every dog is special. Every dog deserves to be cheerleaded just like you did your first one. You know, I, I preach to my guys that a good young dog trainer is just like a kindergarten teacher. You know, they they teach you how to stay between the lines. They teach you how to listen to, to what you're told and to obey, but they also make you feel like you can conquer the world. And that's really what a good young dog trainer is. And paying attention to the little things and, and, and encouraging the dog and cheering for the dog on the little things goes a long way. Yeah, that's great, man. That's a great analogy, the kindergartner. Wow. Our kindergarten teacher, I mean. Um, so as you learned and as you were coming along, you know, when did you start competing in, in retriever trials? How how long after you started training that first dog was it like, okay, I'm ready to go out and compete? Oh, it's very soon. I had my eyes on hunting tests at the very beginning. Um, you know, I was a a big time athlete in high school and and I played a little bit in college and I mean, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the competition aspect of things. So I was running, I was there and ready to go. Um, as soon as, as Allie was old enough to run started, I was ready to sign up. And, 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 and I probably still to this day have nightmares, you know, all my clients will laugh because when it comes to junior or started, it's, it's very difficult to get me near that. I, I, I hate running lower stakes. Um, because there's just so much of an element that you cannot control when you're talking about basic stuff, you know, when you turn that six or eight month old puppy loose, uh, uh, when they see a bird fall and you tell them to go, once they leave your side, you no longer have control of the situation. And, and, and I probably failed three or four started tests before I ever got my first pass because of little things, you know, I had forced Mitch fetch my dog, but I hadn't done it on ducks and she had a really soft mouth. So she didn't know how to pick a duck up, even though she'd pick up a hammer. If you threw it on the ground, um, she just didn't associate that command to that, to that animal. And that's my fault. Um, but I crashed and burned royally on my very first test. And I learned a valuable lesson. One is that you've got to over prepare your dog, but two, the judge saw how close my dog was. She she saw the problem that I had, and she took a duck off the rack, and she said, hey, you're so close. Take this duck and go practice. And and that probably, you know, with me and my, and my disposition, I was hooked just because I failed and I was so mad I was going to make it right. But for someone else that, that might have had a little bit more of a tender heart, I learned what a really good judge can do as far as shaping the mentality of people moving forward in this sport and i have a abundant respect 
for what she did that day. And I, I preach it every time I can that, you know, a, a lower stakes judge is just like a drug dealer. Their job's to get you hooked. And she, she certainly did. She certainly didn't help my habit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. So you had mentioned earlier that, that, you know, you'd watch the great outdoor games back when you were in high school. So you, you eventually also uh, take interest in super retriever series, obviously. And your first event, uh, if I remember correctly, is back in, in 09 Huntsville, you and Bobo. And it, and it comes down to a runoff against Chris Aiken and Canuck. So uh, that's the only runoff we've actually ever had in Super Retriever Series. So, talk to us about that experience. Well, I I ran the Super Retriever Series at that point in time, not because I felt ready to run or ready to compete, but I had a, a couple of dogs, Dude and Bobo, especially, who were becoming Grand Hunt Retriever Champion Master Hunters, and I had to figure out a way to keep those owners interested. I mean, because that. I had such a connection with the dogs. They were the best dogs I had. And I, I mean, what, at some point, what do you do? Say, I can't do any more for you. Just take your dog home. I mean, I, I'm, I'm way too selfish for that. So I told, I told my owners, I'd like to go run and just see what it would take to be competitive. See what I needed to do differently. What, what, what I needed to tra- uh, change in my training, you know, just to kind of get my feet wet. So, you know, <laughs> long story short, I lost dude in the very first series um, on a double poison bird blind and Bobo hung in there the whole time until the end. And Chris was killing us with a dog named Banjo. I mean, he was, he was blistering everybody from the start. And when the wheels came off Banjo in the fourth series, they, they probably still picking up parts of him all over Alabama and all the surrounding States. I mean, he was, he was killing us, and then it just, when the smoke cleared, Banjo was out of the picture, and me and Chris with Canuck were tied for first. And, you know, I'll never forget after the third series, I was coming off the line, and and Shannon said, you know, congratulations. She said, you're winning. And I said, no, ma'am, I'm not. I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not near the top. And she said, you're way ahead of the other amateurs. And at that point, I had to introduce myself in the third series and tell Miss Shannon that I wasn't an amateur. I was actually a pro. Uh, and uh, so that, was, that was how much they didn't know me, how much. And I, I mean, I, I like that. I wasn't upset that no one knew my name. That was just fine. But I did not go there with the intention of winning um, by any means. But I do. I did carry the exact same mentality into it, and that was that I'm going to do the absolute best I can, and if that's good enough to win, then I I won't walk away from it. So we gave it everything we had. Exceptional, exceptional dog in Bobo. Um, probably the most tragic thing about Bobo was the fact that he had to to live his life right there in parallel with Dude because he was every bit of, of an amazing dog in his own right, and Dude stole the show from him you know, more times than not, but I've got probably just as many Bobo puppies that I've trained and and competed with and had a lot of success as I've had dude puppies. So they both continue to give, you know, even after they're gone. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, dude is a hundred percent known across the, the, the retriever trial dogs game for sure. Was he a what? 10 time grand hunt retriever champion? Was it more? I mean, it's a, it's around ten, right? Fifteen. Wow. Yeah. 
And like you said, I mean, anything else in any other situation, 10 is amazing. But when you're, when you have another dog in the same kennel, it's 15. Sometimes Bobo gets overshadowed, but what were their personalities like? I mean, were they similar? Were they different? Uh, and if they were different as, as their handler, how do you adjust your approach at the line knowing, okay, you know, Bobo's like this, dude's like this. I gotta, I gotta change up the way that I handle them. Well, they both really were good markers. Um, they had very different dispositions, especially when it came to running blinds. Bobo would much rather be cast, and dude would much rather line. So for every for every blind dude lined, Bobo one whistled him. I mean, that was just their natural. Bobo preferred to be cast. Dude did not. And it's not that he wouldn't cast. He just, I mean, his initial lines were so, so strong. So I could spend more time with dude on his initial lines and getting him just exactly where I wanted him, where with Bobo, a lot of times it was better just to let him roll, let him pick where he wanted to go and let him roll and and and, and deal with the consequences. That's just the dogs that he the dog he was. But the neat thing about them both, you know, when it came to the crown this year, I was running Mason in Georgia. Mason is a Bobo puppy and Georgia is a dude puppy. So it was, you know, it's fun to watch the traits translate across the generations, across the different breedings. And a lot of times folks might think I'm cold because I don't, I don't dwell on the past and I don't talk about how much I miss this dog because I don't miss them as much because I see them every day. I watch them and what their puppies do. I see the traits, you know, and sometimes I'll mess up and actually call them by the wrong name because they do something that's so much like their mother or their father. So even though they're gone, they're still here for me. Yeah, I was about to ask that. I mean, how close is Mason's personality to Bobo and how how close is George's personality to dude? Very similar, you know, very, very similar. Uh, Mason and Bobo are both big time lovers. Just fun to be around, you know, just goofy in the yard, you know, just doesn't care who in the world's with them. They just want, they're happy to be alive. And dude was similar like that, but he was, he was a lot more of a show off and he didn't care about a woman for nothing. I mean, he loved, he loved the guys, but as far as, you know, snuggling up with a, with a female, he didn't care, not even a little bit, but he loved if the kids run outside with their Sunday best on, he would love to slime them in a hurry. But I mean, they, they, they very much have similar dispositions. Um, Georgia's probably the most dude-looking female you'll ever see because most folks say, man, what a good-looking male. And I'm like, yeah, she's, she's great, ain't she? <laughs> but, I mean, an 80-pound female that looks like a, a, just a little bit smaller version of dude, I mean, her looks and all are very similar. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw a dude in person was at that, uh, I think it was around 2012 at that uh, four by four challenge where it was four four handlers and four dogs on a team. And we were down there in Huntsville and there was those tall reeds and, and your team decided it was you and Rody Best and, and a couple others. And y'all decided, all right, we're going to send dude out first because with that big broad chest that he's got, he's going to tear up those reeds and get them out the way so that the smaller <laughs> dogs, when it's their turn, have a, a wider lane to swim through. So He was definitely uh, but, a, he would bust a hole. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely lived up to his name, the big black dude. Um, speaking of him, so there were, I don't know how many years in there, two or three, where it seemed you were always runner up, right? Like you and dude came in second and it was, man, are they, are they ever going to get over the hump? It was, it was always you and 
and Lyle coming down there and it seemed that he that you know he got the best of you every year even years where dude would be leading all the way to the final series and then something would happen but then 2016 comes around and you and dude finally get the win and you become crown champions um what was what was that day like i think it was actually hold on it was 2014 2016 was the second one right yes you're correct. Yes, 14 and then 16 and then, yes, mm-hmm, you're right. Sorry about that. And and, and trust me, I, if you thought that, 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 man, will they ever get over the hump, I was I was living it, um, but I wasn't sweating it because, you know, you, you know everybody has self-doubt, but this is part of being a, a, a competitor from the start. I mean, you know if you got it or if you don't. And with Dude, I always knew I had it, and I never – I'm not the like I said. I'm not the person that sweats over. If you fall short, doing the best you got, I got no problem with it. If you leave something out there, that's that that's something that I would be you know upset about. But I never felt like you know we didn't do our part. I never felt like I wasn't giving my part or he wasn't giving his. And I knew as consistent a dog as he was, I didn't know what it would take to win. I didn't know because I'd never won it. But I knew that that I was going to do my part and he was going to do his and we were going to get there together and then we would know what it would take <laughs> to win it. So it was just a team thing. And, it, you know, chasing something like that that's so big, it can become it can become too big in your mind if you dwell on it too much and if you put too much emphasis or importance on it. So, you know, we just kind of kept everything in perspective and, and worked hard and, and, and knew that, at the end of the day, you know, when all the smoke cleared, we were going to be there. It was just going to be how close to there we got. Is there a temptation in your training to 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 pivot? I mean, you know that this is the right thing to do, but like you said, sometimes you can get in your own head and you think, okay, maybe I need to make a change. Is there a temptation either in your training or in, when it's game day and we're, we're up there on the line to to change your instinct because you want to win? And if there is a temptation, how do you tell yourself, nope, I got to I got to stick to my guns, knowing that on the right day, Steven will have it, dude will have it and combined we'll win a championship. Well, I, I mean, what you do, it does change based off of what you need to, to get done. You know, in training, if you're running really, really great blinds and your marking is 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 dropping off, then you need to throw more marks. If you know, by that same token, if your control's not there. You need to do more control work. So that is, you know, it's just like golf. You're 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 continually shaping your approach to to make your dog the best he can possibly be at the best at, at the time that he needs to be the best. So, you know, you 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 may change from day to day what you're doing, but you know, the process of training, you gotta believe in yourself and what you're doing. And you gotta have a plan when you go to the line and you also have to have a backup plan for when something unexpected happens and you need to have a backup plan for your backup plan. You know, that's one thing that, that I feel like I've been blessed with is the ability to think on the go because I always have a plan, but when a dog doesn't see a mark fall that you expect them to see fall or, you know, the dog creeps out and you don't, you're, the dog's not sitting where it needs to be sitting to see the birds, right? Those type things happen and you've got to adjust your approach after the smoke clears. So, I mean, that's a 
having a plan is very important, but trusting your process is just as important. So, you know, as far as our daily training goes, I, I really felt like we were doing what we needed to do with all the dogs. Um, and, you know, they say that, what is it? Luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Um, you know, that was, that, I was waiting for that moment. Uh, on a previous episode of the podcast, we had talked to to Mike Gibson and, and he played baseball in college. And he had said that, you know, his background as, a, as an athlete really helps him now, not just from a competitive standpoint, but kind of what you're talking about a minute ago of, of going in with a game plan, but knowing that, that things are going to happen and, and he's going to have to change. And I know you had said sports were a big part of your life and you played sports in high school and, and then some in college as well. So do you think that also gives you uh, an advantage over maybe some, some competitors who weren't athletes themselves to, to know that, Hey, sometimes things you gotta, you gotta change on the fly. Well, I think, I, I don't know if it gives me an advantage over, over somebody else. Cause I'm sure you can achieve it in other ways. Um, the biggest thing I think, you know, that athletics gave me was obviously the ability to be comfortable in my own skin. And, you know, quite frankly, when I'm up there and I'm working with my dog, the last thing I'm worried about is, you know, does my hair look right? Or, you know, how's my butt look in this picture? You know, that's not even coming to, to my mind. I'm not worried about what other people are thinking about me or my dog. I'm worried about maximizing my dog's strengths and minimizing his weaknesses and doing the absolute best I can for my dog in that moment. It's me and it's me and the dog and that's it. And that's one of the things that I think being an athlete helps you is just to channel, channel your energy and your effort in the right direction and not worry about all the noise around you. Yeah, that seems to make sense. That's a, that's a really good analogy there. Um, Saying you're in the moment, it's just you and your dog. So let's take it back to the to the final run that you and Dude had. He won the crown last year. He competed, and what's it like when he's delivering that last bird to you in competition, and you know that it's going to be his last time? What's going through your mind? That that was tough, but you know, it, what was so neat was watching him run. The difference that in him between when he won in fourteen and when he won in sixteen, he was very very much a different dog. You know, his, his physical gifts were fading. We had spent all summer rehab, rehabbing an ACL reconstruction and a lot of, you know, the training leading up to that I was debating is, is what I'm seeing out of shape dog is what I'm seeing just old dog. You know, what, what is the difference between his work? Is it, is it lack of ability or is it lack of of conditioning you know getting any dog in condition after injury is always a task but when you're doing it with a 10 year old dog that weighs you know close to 90 pounds I mean we were very very blessed in his whole career that how few injuries illnesses we had to deal with but you know he didn't see as good as he once saw he didn't hear as good as he once he heard he he you know, and he physically was not, you know, nearly the animal that he was two years before. I mean, we all get old, you know, if we're lucky. And that last day, he was sore. We we were staying in a special hotel, so we, you know, in, in a different hotel than normal, just so he could come in at night and lay out on the floor because he's such a big dog. We wanted him to be able to stretch out and not be cramped up in the box and be sore. And he was he was hurting that last day. Um, you know, he was tired and he was beat up and 
I remember my parents were staying staying in the same hotel, and then and that morning walked out, and he's he's stiff and he's he's sore, and Mama looked at me and she said, "You think he's gonna be all right?" I said, "Do you want to see him lose four or five years?" And she looked at me funny, and I pulled out a bumper and showed it to him, and he 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 immediately went to bouncing, and I didn't even throw it for him; I just put it back up. I said, "He'll be there when it's time to be there." Um, I just didn't want to ask for it anymore. <laughs> we knew we didn't have much more toothpaste in the in the tube, and we didn't want to squeeze it out before we had to. Um, yeah. But I was real proud. I was proud of his career. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things I'm probably most proud of is how we managed his career and kept our kept our eyes on the prize when it comes to to the grand and, and you know passing 15 grands. Is, is is truly a lifetime accomplishment, and I knew that when we got close to breaking the record that it was going to be, by the very nature of being a lifetime accomplishment, it was going to be close to his time being up, and I wanted to make sure I kept, I kept my eyes on the journey and not on the destination, just like I was preaching earlier, but uh, that last run, you know, I, I knew we had an opportunity to do real well, and I, I knew we had it sewed up when he picked up his last bumper, which was ironic. Because where the where the last blind was planted was almost the identical spot that we ran from in 2009 when I lost him on the double poison bird blind. I was like, how ironic is it that he's going to end his career where he started his SRS career? But uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and it was a, like I said, I knew it was coming, and I was I was as proud as anything that that. I told Shannon and everybody else before we went, you know, when I, when we came in 2016, I just wanted to do one really good series. I said, I hope he has one good series and can, can go out in style. And he just kept stringing them along, stringing them along, stringing them along. Um, but, but when we were done, I was so glad that I had slammed the door on this is it. We're not doing this again because my word held me to, to, away from being tempted to say, Hey, we could do it just one more year. You know, maybe, maybe we could pull it out one more time. And I just didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be that guy that took the dog that gave him so much and then didn't, didn't let him retire when he needed to retire. Well, and you let him go out on top too, right? So who gets to do that? Who, I mean, who in, uh, in sports, you know, I guess you could say Barry Sanders maybe, but in sports and in life, you know, two-legged or four-legged, there's very few, very few p- entities that get to walk out on top. And and I didn't expect that in 2016, but it was a pretty cool, it was a pretty cool way to go. Absolutely. You're listening to the Behind the Line podcast. Our guest today is multi-time crown champion, Stephen Durrance. And we're going to take a quick break here for a second, just to thank our sponsor, Yukonuba, and then we'll get back to it here with Steven in a second. You know, sporting dogs give us everything we ask for and then some, so their nutrition should do the same for them. To find out more about Yukonuba, go to yukonubasportingdog.com. You can also follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Yukonuba Sporting Dog. Steven, we've uh, chatted about your past dogs. Let's talk about the ones you're you're currently training. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago, Mason and Georgia. Those are the ones that I think people who follow the Super Retriever Series are familiar with. At this point in time, uh, I know you have some other you know, dogs coming along that you're probably also excited about, and we'll chat with about them in a minute. Um, but let's start with those two. Let's start with uh, with Mason and Georgia. You know, you qualified them both for the for the crown last year, and uh, you know Georgia came out there, and uh, Georgia now is a crown champion. So uh, 
Tell us about the, the 2019 Crown Championship. Well, I can't emphasize enough, and this goes back to, to Dude and Bobo and, and all the other dogs that have been contributors, is, you know, this is a team sport, not just you and the dog, but especially when it comes to an event like the Crown, there's a distinct advantage in getting to, th- to run more than one dog because it gives you the opportunity to see the test multiple times. Um, and, and, and I truly, if you go back and watch the scores and analyze the scores, I, I think you could have flipped the coin if in the first series, Georgia got a little bit better score than Mason and he broke the ice for her the rest of the time. And if you look at their comparative scores and how they were coming on in each and every series, I feel like Mason had every bit the opportunity to win. Had he got a, a, a better break in the first series, he may have been the crown champion and Georgia got fourth. Um, it was just it, – it, it's, it's enjoyable watching your dogs do what you train them to do, and it's enjoyable when you can see them give similar scores, similar efforts, because it shows your strengths and, and, and your weaknesses as well you know, what you need to do more of and, and also, you know, where, where your dogs are strong. Um, but I, I couldn't be any more proud of those two dogs and what they've given, you know, and the opportunity that they, that they both had. Mason's been a pretty consistent player in this game for a while. And he's, he's continually showing his, his consistency, which is I'm, I'm very big on, you know, Georgia was relatively new, but, I knew that she was special very, very early on. And, you know, you, you count you count your blessings each and every day, you know, what they're able to accomplish because there's, there's far more great dogs that never get to win the crown than, than, than those who get to be crown champions. I mean, all those dogs that qualify to be there are, are very good in their own right and deserve recognition just for being there. Um, you know, and, and it, it can only be one dog's day in order to win. So Mason very much – Mason and his runs very much helped Georgia in her runs, and I believe that had the, she been on the other foot, that they both would have been – you know, that Georgia would have contributed to Mason the absolute same way. But, I mean, it was a great event this year. It was super challenging, really good bird placement, and a different place. You know, being in Natchez, is a, it was a little different experience than 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 being at Jones Farm and and Huntsville like like we have been accustomed to in the past several years, so it was a neat experience, neat place, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place, and you know we just plugged right along on there, and, and consistency is what wins, and you know we continued to post scores and we continued to be there, and you know it worked out in the end, it worked out in the end. Uh, for our advantage, but it was not like it was a stress-free event. I'm I'm excited to see what the what the TV show looks like because I mean it tr- truly was down to the wire, and that's what that's what good good events are about. I was about to say, I imagine when it when it airs on the Discovery Channel on June 27th, uh, you'll probably be watching it with a lot less nerves than when you were actually there on the line trying to win. So, well, it was definitely line. it was definitely an experience, and and you know you talked about having a plan. And I'll go ahead and tell you, you know, that very last bird that we picked up, my plan was if I miss this bird, I'm going to miss it left because I had missed it right already. And I knew I didn't, I, I, I was, I did not think I had a handle to give. So I said, if I miss this bird, I want to miss it on the left-hand side because at least I didn't run the same exact line twice. And I can say I gave her a chance. So 
y'all can y'all can stay tuned and see how that one turns out. Exactly. Check your local listings. Like I said, Discovery Channel, June twenty seventh, two thousand nineteen Crown Championship will air on your television. Uh, let's talk about you for a second. So uh, we talked about the dogs that won. You were the winning handler, and uh, SRS is partnered with Prairie Rock. The winner of this year's crown will get the opportunity to go hunt that property in 2021, but you went this past year uh, and had the opportunity to hunt the rock. So what was that experience like for you? I think it was terrible. I don't think anyone should ever go. Matter of fact, if whoever wins this year, you should just go ahead and I'll take the bullet and go for you. My goodness. Um, it was it was incredible. <laughs> I really, I never dreamed that there would be so much, so much duck hunting in Nebraska. But it wasn't just, you know, uh, Arkansas comes to mind. You know, a lot of the bad days in Arkansas. On a bad day in Arkansas, you can see more ducks in a day than you'll you will see possibly in your whole life in the state of Georgia. That does not mean that you can kill those ducks because they may be traveling. They may be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet in the air, and there's nothing you can do about it but watch them fly. But it was so neat, you know, to to hunt in a different place, different surroundings unbelievable amounts of game not just not just ducks but but geese and and deer and turkeys just all kinds of it was just a a paradise a paradise in the middle of the wilderness almost you'd say but it was i mean just thousands and thousands of birds and they wanted to be where you were and i mean it was just incredible hunting incredible time you know the the way that they host the hunters out there the facilities it really is a premier secret and you know it's one of those things when you go and see a place like that the sad part of it is you know when it's that nice and and the hunting's that good that it won't be a secret for long and you know then you got to contend with a bunch of other people that 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 want to be where you are. But that was an amazing experience. Thanks to Shannon and to Jake for the, for for letting me go out there because it was it was a very very special opportunity. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Jake because I know during that weekend you and him formed a really great relationship. You've obviously known Jake Latondras for several years, as as has anyone who's been uh, around Super Retriever Series. Jake, for those of you that don't know him, is is probably, if not the most, one of the most talented uh, wildlife photographers I've ever seen in my life uh, from, from video and, and still photography. He just does amazing things with the camera and captures some great images. And I know he bought his dog from, for, his dog Tanner from you and and now after that that weekend that you and him are out there, y'all y'all started doing a, a new video podcast uh called the Retriever Connection. So so tell us about your podcast. It is it is really one of those things you don't see coming, but it turned out to be really good for both of us. Um he and I were discussing, you know, I quite frankly, I was on the phone with him going, Man, I'm from Georgia and it gets cold out there and I don't know if I'm gonna make it. You know, what do I need to wear? What do I need to bring? You know, yada yada yada. We're just shooting the breeze. And um, he 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 said, you know, as as the conversation went on, he said, "Man, I'm about ready to get a new family dog." And we were talking about getting a puppy, and he told me he wanted a yellow because of how the yellows hide so much better in in that type of cover in the on the North Platte River. So he told me about everything he wanted, and I was like, "Man, I've got some puppies coming up. This is great." And then I realized. I had a two-year-old version of what he was asking for, and him being an outfitter, on top of being a videographer, 
you know, having a puppy's great, but he needed something he could hunt, you know, as soon as possible. And I, Tanner was a special pro, uh, project that had been brought to me in April. His owner was uh, a gentleman in his 80s and super nice dog, but just so much dog. He was taking advantage of Mr. Bruce. And we, I, you know, he brought the dog down. I watched him and I said, I really feel like I can fix your dog's problems, but I don't think I can fix your dog's problems with you. I think he's going to, as soon as, as soon as we fix the issues, when he reverts back to you, he's not going to transfer that behavior over. I said, my suggestion is let me give you a really nice dog that I've got and we'll do a parcel swap, so to speak. I've got a dog that's perfect for you and you've got a dog that needs a different home. And so we, we made that swap and, and the dog I swapped him passed the grand and the master national in the following, in the following fall. But, but we took Tanner and kind of did a little bit of rework on him and, and, and got him right. And I just had this really nice dog and I had told the guys, I was like, you know, this dog would be perfect for an outfitter because he has so much self-belief. He's such an alpha animal. He needs a high volume of work and he needs the opportunity. You know, he's also one of those dogs that if you send him after a bird, he's not coming back without it. So the volume of work's not going to intimidate him. And he's got that self-belief. You know, I preach this all the time that the same thing that makes dogs good is the same thing that make them bad. And in Tanner's case, his self-belief, sometimes can make him a difficult dog to handle, but it's also what's going to guarantee that at the end of the day, he's bringing a bird back. And when Jake was telling me about what he wanted, I realized, oh my gosh, this could be it. This could be, this could be the the match that we're looking for. So I took Tanner with me, uh, took Tanner and Mason out there and we hunted both of them um, and let Jake have the opportunity to see Tanner work. It was Tanner's first time hunting. And, and so I didn't expect it to be without issue, but the two of them struck up a, a good relationship and it worked out great. And that led to this whole retriever connection thing. Um, he and I were having multiple discussions. He'd call me and say, okay, I'm having trouble with this. What do I need to do? And we'd have these really cool in-depth, long conversations. And finally I'm like, Jake, this is stuff other people need to hear. This is stuff that, our conversations are, I don't, I hate to say wasted between the two of us because they're not, but there's so many people that have the same issues that they would stand to, to gain from this because Jake was a hunter. He's been a hunter for, for his whole life and he thought he knew dogs, but then he realized he didn't at all. And now he has a dog who knows more than he does. And, and he's willing to put himself out there to record himself while he's training and make mistakes on camera. And then every, every Wednesday night at eight o'clock, let me dissect his work and, and, and essentially tear him to, to shreds in front of an audience. But what he has gained through it is incredible. And what I believe other people are getting out of it. I mean, there, there's so many questions that, that people have that they don't know how to ask or they don't know who to ask. And, and my goal is to keep this, conversation about jake and about tanner as long as possible and help them become better handlers and better dogs um through this tutorial that he and i are dealing with so it's a it's a really neat social experiment 
you know, this is not something that I'm accustomed to. I'm used to, I'm used to manipulating my world on a daily basis. You know, here, here's what we're going to do. Here's the setup we're going to run. This is what we're going to look for. This is the mistakes the dogs are going to make. This is what's going to happen when they do, do the right thing. But when it comes to this interactive, you know, conversation face-to-face online in front of an audience, it, it, it's pretty neat. And we intentionally don't talk about the issues before we talk about it um, because the genuine nature that Jake has when he when he really gets excited and he starts asking the questions, you can't replicate that. And if and if I answer those questions off off camera, it's not as special when we try to recreate that. So we we intentionally don't talk about it as much as possible. I give him homework, I give him assignments, and I answer simple questions. But the actual analysis we do in real time because it just it's it that special novelty of it you can't replicate it yeah and how's it been received so far i mean you're getting a lot of a lot of good comments about it we're getting a lot of really good response um of course we want to see more people get on it and and interact with us in the live sessions and not wait to watch them later um but and the other struggle is, you know, there's a lot of people that have these questions that don't know about this, this concept yet that we're doing it. So it's really catching on, you know, word of mouth is, is spreading it around. And, and again, this is typically outside of a cell phone, the most advanced technological device I use on a daily basis is either remote control to the TV or remote control to the dog. And I'm just, this is a whole different world for me. And, and Jake's super high on it. He said, you know, as far as the, the indicators that we're seeing early on, he's really excited about it. And I'm super excited just watching him learn and going back and watching the relative progression of what's happening, you know, how much better he's getting. And I I, I, I told him the other day, I said, what we're accidentally documenting here is the evolution of an addiction. I said, we're actually catching on camera you becoming addicted to dog training and the process of dog training. And, and he'll be the first one to tell you, he thought he knew, he thought he understood dogs. He thought that he had retriever stuff figured out and for him to stand there and, and actively admit that he didn't know anything. It's neat to watch. Yeah, man, that sounds, that sounds awesome. I know, uh, I'll need to check it out. I, I'll be the first to admit that I've, I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, that it is definitely uh, something that I'm going to check out, you know, every week moving forward because it sounds like it's uh, a real. I know you and I know Jake, and you're both great dudes, and I just can't wait to watch the two of you interact and and see Jake become a, a better handler there with his dog Tanner. Um, question for you: So this year's crown back in Huntsville, uh, it's been a lucky spot for you in the past, as we discussed. I know Georgia is the is the defending champion will be back. Assuming Mason will be there too, uh, you know what what's next for for Stephen Durrance and and Taylor Farm Kennels? Uh, those are your two dogs that everybody knows. Are there any other kind of puppies that are coming up behind them that that people need to keep an eye on? That you're like, hey, a couple of years from now, that this dog here might also win a crown. Oh, I've always got a project. Um, I've got some some up and comers, not just dogs. I've got people. You know, we I'm super super proud of the SRSU team that just ran. This, um, what, two weeks ago, um, Brian Boykin um, won with Pine. That was her second year in a row. She had won. Pine is actually, uh, Pine is 
Georgia's younger brother, full sibling, um, Garris Boykin, got second with Boss, who is a full son to Bobo. And Hunter Lamar got fifth with Sarge, who is a, I'm trying to remember how this, I want to say that was dude bred to a Bobo female. So <laughs> it's been it's been neat watching not just those dogs grow up, but those handlers grow up and, and how well they did with their dogs. I'm so proud of them as a team and what they managed to accomplish for the second year in a row. Um, but we've, you know, we've always got young dogs coming up and I don't sit here and say, well, this dog's going to win the crown in a couple of years. I definitely focus on the process and we, we achieve each goal as we can. And we hope, you know, by the time the dog matures that there's enough time there's enough time and there's enough dog left to go and be competitive at Super Retriever Series events. Speaking of the SRSU, man, it's been a pretty good gig for you as a coach, right? Two years in a row, the event's been around two years, and two years in a row you've gone out there and shown everybody what it takes to be the, the winning team. Well, again, that that's, that is as much a reflection on those kids as it is on me. Um, I, don't think we, I don't think we've done well because we had the best dogs. I think we've done well because we have the best communication, um, not just handler to dog, but those those kids have put so many hours in with me and have taken the brow beating that that I have a tendency to do. And and you know when I when I tell them I want this cast or I want you to set this dog up this way, they know what I'm saying. They can they can finish my sentences. They've been berated so much. Um, they. And I, I think that's a really cool thing. Um, one of the biggest compliments I got last year was J.C. Strange and his father were, were judging, and J.C. texted me after it was over with. He said, man, it was an honor to see the communication level you had with your kids. And I said, you know, normally we're, we're all in over the communication level that a handler has with their dog. I was like, that that's probably the biggest compliment that I could get, that, that, my, that my students – and I have that level of understanding of what we're looking for. And that's just, like I said, that's a credit to the, to the, to the children that are willing to put their time in over here, to the parents that are willing to, to make the commitment to, to get them over here. Because Garrison and Brian have been coming for since 2012. And Brian's a, a, a rising sophomore at Clemson, and Garris is a rising senior. So they were middle school when they started coming over here and I mean, it's a 45 minute ride one way. And that, like I said, there have been many, many, many days that we've spent in the field, me giving them a, a harder time than I probably even should have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and I know that those kids really appreciate that, that hard time, you know, that, that tough love is what's going to make them great handlers. And and so far, like you said, they put in the time and, and the results are, are, you know, proof their own that these guys are, are doing a great job out there doing so well in the, in the super retriever, uh, university games two years in a row. Steven, that's, uh, it's been a great time here chatting with you before we let you go. We're going to end. We always end with the same five questions. I ask five questions, rapid fire style, and you can answer them just equally as quickly. Uh, question number one that we always kind of wrap up with is what's something about you that most people don't know. Oh, I'm a homebody. <laughs> I, I really enjoy, I enjoy being around the house. I enjoy being on this farm. And it's an irony to me that I spend so much time on the road with my job when 
when all I wanted out of life was to let my children be on this farm. When I say retriever trials, who's the first dog that comes to mind, yours or someone else's? Just, I say retriever trials, this dog comes to your mind, and why? I don't think we could dispute that dude would be at the forefront of my mind, not just because of what we've talked about this time around, but because he's he showed me what I could expect from a dog. You know, I, I taught him a little bit, and he taught me a whole lot, and most of that was based around what what level you actually could demand, what level of precision that you could ask for my animal. If dude was a human athlete, what sport would he play and why? Uh, <laughs> whatever would get him the most attention. Cause like I said, he's a show off. If you had to describe yourself in one word, what would it be? Focused. And final question for you. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I was I was headed towards medical school when I found dogs. So. <laughs> My poor wife thought she was marrying a doctor. She's married a doctor in the in the retriever <laughs> trial games. You've got <laughs> you're you're a you're a professional with that, and uh, you're you're among the best. But she she thought she was getting a, a medical doctor, but instead she gets someone that can can diagnose dogs and knows what <laughs> makes them tick, and and has definitely been a champion. So. Stephen, we uh, have enjoyed the the last hour here talking to you, and uh, best of luck to you uh, moving forward. It's always great chatting with you, and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the Crown uh, in Huntsville here in a couple months. Appreciate you giving up your time. All right, man. Talk to you soon.